Welcome back to Radical Health Radio. Today, I had the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Will Harris, the author of A Bold Return to Giving a Damn, but more famously known for being the founder and leader in the regenerative health space of White Oaks Pastures. Will is a fourth generation farmer, but he's really done an incredible job of healing from more of a classical industrialized farming method that his father did and his father's fathers before him to now spearheading this regenerative agriculture movement. So we dive into that entire topic like regenerating soil, biodiversity, fighting this big giant of big food and these interests that are at play to maybe push us more towards a plant-based future and destroy the reputation and the reliability of things like regenerative agriculture. You know, cow farts, cow burps are killing the planet, right? No, not according to Will, at least. So expect to learn why, what Will learned as a conventional farmer moving to regenerative farming and the story and the story about what we do for the future of our food. This is packed with wisdom, practical, and a really important topic because our food is our future and our land is our legacy. So let's get into the show. Will Harris, welcome to the show. A Bold Return to Giving a Damn is the title of your new book. And I love that title because it's like a gut punch from the heart. I feel as though there's a little bit of existential nihilism, like why should we give a damn? Why should we care, Will? Isn't it all broken? Aren't we just, you know, going to shit? What's going to happen? So, Will, why do we need a bold return to giving a damn? And what are we giving a damn about? Let's add some context to the conversation. Well, you just said it's all going to shit. So, you know, we, we need to give a damn. And, you know, there's just so much wrong with our food production system and how we treat the earth, you know, animal rural communities. It, you know, it's time to do something different. No, no, no. We're belated in doing something different. Hmm. And when you say that, it comes from a place of lived experience. You're a sixth-generation farmer, if I believe correctly, and you didn't always practice more holistic, regenerative grazing, regenerative ag. And we'll dive into those terms for the readers that aren't super familiar with those yet. But you can speak to them from a place of understanding, unlike most people, because you've seen both sides of the coin. So tell us a little bit about the story in terms of your evolution as a farmer, as a person, and, and you know, bringing us up to speed to how you, you know, look at this whole system today. Well, I've just seen how to farm industrially. I'm a perpetrator. You know, I did it for 20 years. So I, this is a sixth-generation farm, but my grandchildren are the sixth. I'm the fourth. My children are the fifth. My grandchildren are the sixth. And to answer your question, I'll take you back to when my great-grandfather came to this piece of land in 1866 and farmed it all his life. And the way he farmed it, would, you, know, we, you know, the Harrises are not known for keeping good historical records, but we know how people farmed in that era. And it would have been with a lot of focus on doing the right things by the land, the animals, and the community. Because mm. that's what you did. That's what you did. 
uh, it was he he was followed by his son, my grandfather, who also farmed the land properly. This would have been in the late 1800s, early 1900s. The first generation to go awry was my dad. My dad was born in 1920, and he was a very, very good industrial farmer. Post-World War II, because World War II ended in 1945, hmm. so he would have been 25 years old at the end of the war. And that's when we industrialized, that's when his generation industrialized agriculture. And we can talk about that a long time. But he farmed you know, this land industrially for his career and was very successful. He was, uh, when he died, he left me a thousand acre farm, paid for a good herd of cattle, a little bit of money. And I, I, all I ever wanted to do was farm industrially the way my father did. Hmm. I went, to, I was born in 1954. I went to the University of Georgia. I uh, graduated in 1976. I majored in animal science. <clears throat> That's kind of interesting. Uh, early on, it had been animal husbandry. But when I, by the time I graduated, it was animal science. Hmm. And I came home and ran the farm for 20 years, very industrially, as my father had. And I really enjoyed it for most of that time. And I was financially successful. You know, I went back and looked after the fact. And I never didn't make money in the 20 years I farmed this farm industrially. I paid taxes every single year. <clears throat> I reached a point that I didn't like it anymore. We can talk a long time about that. Mm -hmm. But I transitioned the farm to what we're doing today. And um, the broad, and uh, that, that uh, caused two of my three daughters to want to come back here with their spouses. Mm. Of course, they, they're having children. So... That's that's the lineage. Yeah, that's beautiful, and I'm I'm very curious about a few of the things that you said there. Number one, if it was working and it was financially successful, but you still chose to risk it, let's say by flipping it on its head, there must have been some inherent motivation. And I'm guessing when you were getting going, it wasn't a podcast or a social media post or a trendy movement or terms like regenerative agriculture. It was something else. What was it that you saw or felt or experienced being somebody that was doing it the classical way or maybe the neoclassical way, let's say, who then felt something was wrong or off or saw something that didn't sit right and decided to risk it and change everything despite being, quote unquote, successful? Well, we uh, we we were successful financially. We we were not rich people, but we lived comfortably, made money every year, and it, it was I had no debt, no debt. It was fine. And my reasons for changing were not monetary. Uh, we, uh, you know, I didn't think I was going to necessarily make more or less money when I changed the way we farm. It was a it, it was a reaction to the excesses of that industrial farming that I had been doing all my life. Uh, the, uh, uh, you know, I was, I was, uh, I was so, I was an abuser. I was a heavy handed. I, I, I you know, if, if the, if the label instructions said to put a paint per acre, I put a quart, but I was, uh, I think the reasons I changed is because I was so heavy handed. Uh, if the label instruction said 
the animal should be injected with one cc per hundred. I would inject them with two ccs per hundred because mm. if a little does a little good, more would certainly do better. Mm. If it said put a pint to the acre, uh, I would put a quart to the acre for the same reasons. So because I was such a heavy-handed uh, abuser, abuser seems a little strong, but that's probably as good a word as I can come up with, uh, I became increasingly aware of the unintended consequences of those tools I was using and decided and didn't want to use them anymore. Hmm. You said around the 1950s-ish was when the industrial state of farming really took over. And I've heard you speak in the past, and I think this is really fascinating for people to understand who might otherwise have no clue about this. But a lot of um, materials or chemicals, if you will, from left over from war and the production of weapons, etc., were then used to introduce into our um, agricultural systems, right? So I'm curious what those were, what the impact was, and what were we doing before? Is that is that the key? Like before we weren't using these things, and therefore that's kind of what we're returning to, but it changed everything seemingly overnight, and this was something that, you know, your father used and you would then use, and this idea of, like you said, more is better, so if we have some of this, let's put it everywhere. What was the story there, and, and what were these things that came into the industrial farming model that now, I think, with a bit of hindsight, we're realizing were maybe not so good? Well, there, there are a lot of them, and you're right. You know, the, you said the 50s, and you're correct in that. That's when it really became, uh, it become a, a, a ritual recipe for growing a crop. But it really started right after World War II. My dad... I was born in 54, so this this predates me. But my dad said that uh, right after the war in, in 1946 or so, a, a salesman came to Bluffton, this little town I'm in, and had a big fish fry to invite farmers to give them uh, 10 pounds or so of ammonium nitrate fertilizer to take home and, and just see how magical it was. Hmm. Now, Ammonium nitrate fertilizer, I believe, was uh, invented or found or discovered or whatever whatever you do with a chemical uh, in the late 1800s. But it was very expensive, and farmers couldn't afford to use it. Hmm. So it wasn't until the uh, post-World War II that the explosives manufacturing capacity to make bombs for the war, war materials for the war, could be converted over to make ammonium nitrate fertilizer to be used in agriculture, cost effective. Mm -hmm. So, in, in close farmers, my dad told a story. It was it was just magic to put that that white powder out there on your grass and wet it, put water water it in, and give it three or four days. I mean, nobody could believe how it grew, mm. and you could see my dad's generation could see the benefit of that chemical, that, that ammonium nitrate, that chemical reaction, chemical slash microbial reaction. And, but they couldn't see the unintended consequences that was causing, hmm. that were bad. You know, it was, it, it was oxidized, it immediately oxidized some percentage of the organic matter in the soil, which cost the soil. Hmm. But you couldn't see that. You could see the grass, couldn't see the loss of organic matter or the loss of uh, 
you know, worms, other insects. You know, you know, so, so, you know, all the unintended consequences were hidden. That's so often the case. But the benefits are so obvious. You know, think about drugs that you take today. You, mm-hmm. you, you take something because it, it makes you feel better, whatever malady you might have. But then later on, you find out it caused your kidneys to shrink or something. You know, so, so that's the same kind of deal. Yeah. Uh, on and on, we could talk about a lot of different things. Uh, the uh, the ammonium nitrate was the big one, but you know, these guys left the farm plowing with mules, went to the European theater and drove tanks. When they came home, they didn't want to plow a mule, they want a tractor. Mm-hmm. So it's just on and on. Nerve, you know, pesticides came from nerve gas uh, chemistry. On, on and on. And I've heard you say in the past, and it's something I've I've since borrowed because it makes so much sense, and most people have never heard it, that all of the sides, pesticides, rodenticides, fungicides, like homicide, is death. And the unintended consequences are that, you know, first you might be like, wow, look at the life of the green lushness of this grass, but what you're not seeing is the death of soil. And I think that that is a huge part of this regenerative movement, this holistic grazing and this management that we're now probably trying to undo the unintended consequences. You know, the old adage that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We couldn't see that or anticipate it. It looked like all win, all good. And now we're trying to heal, seal, refertilize these soils in more of a holistic way using animals, not necessarily using these chemical inputs. So what's the story there? When when this farmland that you inherited, this thousand acres that had been commercially and chemically farmed, and now healing through that, how, what, what's what's a timeline on something like? What do you actually see? Is is nature quick to heal if you remove the synthetic inputs? Does it take a lot of practice and time? Like how long has that journey been going for you? It it, it does it does take a lot of time. Uh, you know, nature doesn't heal. Nature always heals. Nature doesn't heal quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you uh, before I answer that, I want I want to it, it, it speak to what you said about the the sides. You know, the the change in attitude when we embraced modern agriculture was kill the problem. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, be the analytical. Decide what your problem was out there and know what uh, chemistry it took to kill it. And the, the better you were at that, the better industrial farmer you were. And I, I was good at it. We made money every year. That, that was what I did. What I'd done all my life. My dad taught me how to do it, and the University of Georgia taught me how to do it. Mm. But that's not what when when we changed the way we farm, it was a, it wasn't about killing something. It was about keeping everything alive. You know, you uh, I certainly have uh, the the uh, products that I monetize that I want to see maximize production as much as I can. But killing the pest is not the problem. Improving the system, improving the productivity. Is, is is the goal here. Uh, used to, when I was farming industrially, raising cattle, uh, my all of my pastures were Tifton 85 Bermuda grass, mm. which is a, a hybrid Bermuda grass bred at the University of Georgia that yields incredible amounts of 
foliage because it can assimilate incredible amounts of chemical fertilizer. Uh, when I quit using chemical fertilizer, all of my Tustin 85 died. It went away, not at one time, but it went away over in decline. Prior to that, if you were growing in my pasture, if you were a plant species and you were growing in my pasture and you weren't Tustin 85 Bermuda grass, I'd kill your ass. Mm-hmm. I would find something and spray you with it and kill you. So the difference in what I do now versus what I do then is keeping the system alive and growing and spinning off an abundance mm. rather than uh, eliminating all the species except the one that that I was trying to promote. Yeah, cool. And I think that really points at a stark difference between death versus life and this conversation that we will certainly have about biodiversity and fostering as much life microorganisms within the soil and as much life on the land like you don't just do one animal you've got many different animals and a lot of life but before we switch gears and get into that i'm curious about some of the standout ugly truths of the conventional model because i think it's important for people to understand these because i do believe that the pain we feel when we hear these stories can be a great motivator to spur us into some kind of action and change and the ugly truth of what you was just talking about with the pesticides and such of destroying the soils is only one part of the equation you have the other part here which is the quality of life of the animals in more of a conventional model these caged animal feeding operations the things that they are given to eat the medications potentially the vaccinations the way they are treated you know reflecting on your journey and i'm sure you know other people that farm more um you know classically and um and um kind of industrially what are some of the ugly truths you think that are hidden from people about the farming system as it pertains to animal husbandry health happiness etc well i think i think that's a good one to talk about uh, animal welfare is an issue that you hear more and more discussion of and when I was farming industrially, uh, I, the cattle was my my crop. I was a cattleman. Uh, I would have, if you had told me my animal welfare was not good, I would have taken you outside and whipped you, because I thought it was great. Because my definition of good animal welfare during that part of my life was, if I keep them well fed, well watered safe from harm and reasonably comfortable, that's good animal welfare. Mm-hmm. That I mean that that's as good as you can do. And I believe that. I and mean, I would have I would have argued with you at length about it. And it's not true. You know, that's not that's not true. You, know, it, it, you have to do those things. That's essential. But you also have to uh offer them the opportunity to express instinctive behavior. Hmm. You know, if you if you have a, a child and you keep him in a closet, but in that closet you leave the light on, it's 72 degrees, there's plenty of food in there for him, there's a mattress. And that's good animal welfare. That's good ch- child rearing, you know, like animal welfare. You, mm-hmm. you, well, he's comfortable. But it's terrible. I mean, it's just awful because they don't get to express instinctive behavior. They want to go outside and climb a tree and throw a football and do whatever else kids do. And, you know, 
Chickens want to scratch. Hogs want to root and wallow. Cows want to roam and graze. And depriving them of that instinctive behavior is, is horrible on a welfare. Mm. But, you know, my, I didn't, I did not know that. You know, I, you, you couldn't have convinced me of that 30 years ago, but I know now. Yeah, there's a there's an old saying when we know better, we can do better. And I think that, you know, the, the, that analogy of like keeping the child in the closet from a safety and, and well-fed standpoint maps beautifully onto like the classical uh, animal raising standard that that's is that the standard we're holding ourselves to when really if you proposition that to any person about a human, they're like, well, no, that's that's terrible. And that's akin to what we're doing to millions, millions and millions of animals in, in different ways. And you know, I think really seeing that feeling that um, for me personally, you know, being a little homesteader, as we were talking about offer, having some chicken, the 21 chickens, um, you know, I'm going to catch you one day, Will, we got our massive 21 chickens and three goats, we're coming, we're coming for white oak pastures level, but seeing the way they want to, they can't be confined if you let them live naturally, they want to roam, they go, they go like a mile away into the woods and the pecking and the foraging and they need to do that. And I think that it's interesting, it's akin maybe how to uh, how we raise people you know like we don't have truly free range people they're very domesticated they do ver live these very like in a box lifestyle everything comes in a box and the schools and the institutions are in a box and it's all very it's all very safe you know it's this uh peaceful slavery as opposed to this dangerous freedom and with that comes a lot of greenwashing of terms too a lot of oh no it's it's grass-fed but i know you speak about what that actually means and how damaging that can be to the movement when someone can throw out something like free-range chicken or they say they have outdoor access or this is grass-fed and then people believe that they're choosing an animal that had a really good life when in reality maybe not so much so how big of an issue is the um the greenwashing with these labels and and maybe a little bit of mis purposefully misleading the consumer well it's an, it, it is an incredible part of this whole equation and 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 in fact you know when i when i went into this business 25 years ago you know i had to figure it out but i didn't have to combat greenwashing it, it wasn't happening 25 years ago uh, i know and then and, and we 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 made it through those early formative years and and it's fine i've, I've got uh, friends and acquaintances who are uh, smarter than me better businessmen than me and financially stronger than me who have failed in this business because they started it much later than i did and had to combat greenwashing and greenwashing will break you it will break a farmer it's just it's just, it's just will and I can give you a lot of examples, but the best one is uh, currently. Uh, did you know that uh, you could, if you were, were you could, but a big a, a big meat company can import beef from twenty different countries and label it as product of the USA, proudly label it product of the USA, though the animal was bred, born, raised, and slaughtered in probably Uruguay, Australia, New Zealand, or 17 other countries. I mean, it is such a gross insult to the consumer 
that it's just incredible to me that that can happen illegally, but it but it is happening legally. Yeah, that is. Yeah, I was gonna say that is really crazy, and I'm curious as to how is that the extension of these kind of um, mass industrialized, like corporately captured institutions that basically produce the overwhelming majority of our meat. I forget the statistic, but it's it's only a few, right? Meat producers that produce like the overwhelming majority. So therefore, are they just, they're not even bending the rules at this point. They're just rewriting them, it sounds like. Oh, they're not breaking the rules. They're, they're writing the rules. Hmm. It's called a uh, country of origin labeling. And what it says is, you read the fine print, <clears throat> that if uh, if value is added in this country, it's product of the USA. And there needs to be no mention of where the animal was born, raised, stunned, skinned, and butchered. It's a product of the USA. And it's uh, that and similar rules have really stymied the growth of what we do here. You know, we, we've been able to survive here because we started early enough and it, it's, it's, it's not okay, but we, we, we've survived. Hmm. Uh, but, uh, uh, it's it's put a lot of people out of business, and it's me that that rule is being reconsidered now. And it's getting a lot of publicity, and I hope you'll hope your your listeners will look into uh, country of origin labeling and uh, express an opinion to their to the lawmakers. That's fascinating because I feel like um, compared to the average person, at least that I'm a little more clued up in this space because I get to talk to wonderful people like yourself, and I had no clue about that, and that's really quite shocking and. You know, you, you mentioned how this is putting farmers of U.S. origin out of business and such. And, you know, I think it's it's uh, it'll be no surprise to you, maybe a surprise to our listeners that the kind of depression and suicidal ideation, et cetera, in the farming community is higher than that of the veteran community because it's so difficult, probably because of a lot of this malpractice and lack of integrity like you you're so deep in this you've probably had friends and family and people around you like just how how difficult is it now to even to, to kind of like stand up against this and fight it you keep saying you know i was i was lucky to some degree that i got in when i did what's it like trying to fight this monster now as somebody trying to get going what's it like for the person that gives a damn now to try and stand up to this beast you know i don't i don't know that uh I don't know that a farmer could be very successful fighting the beast now. If you were, if you want to have a very small place and raise your own food, you could you could certainly do. Uh, you know, you're, you're under the radar, you'd be fine. Uh, but it's it's very very difficult to fight big food. Then uh, and, and I I really worry about it. You know, when I started uh, this this making this change, a very dramatic change that we made. At some level, I thought I was an early innovator in a new way of feeding the country. I don't know that I put those words together, but I was thinking something like that. But along the way, I've seen that it's not that's not the way that's going to work. Uh, as we were successful and others uh, followed, <clears throat> followed a similar path to ours, big food just closed the gap. You know, they just said all the same things that we were saying in a voice much louder than we could muster and sold the product instead of us. It's uh, it's, it's really a, you know, and I don't know what's going to become of it. 
I have no, I have no idea how this is going to work out. Mm. You know, I, I can't imagine my side really winning and being successful. Mm. But I do know that the unintended consequences of the way we're feeding ourselves now cannot last. Cannot last. So I, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to work out. Somebody a lot smarter than me is going to have to figure it out. And I, you know, sadly, I won't live to see it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know about maybe smarter from a academic standpoint, I guess. But when I often think about the people that I want leading the charge for the future, I think I want people like you. I think I want people that are smart enough to work with nature and feed us because when we don't have food, I think we're up shit creek without a paddle. And I think the things that you're alluding to here is a potential future where that dystopian you know, reality becomes the lived reality that we get to experience. But at the same time, I know that you're not throwing in the towel. You're not willing to, you know, just give up and you're going down swinging, hence the buck. So there must be something. There must be something that we can do, whether it's at a grassroots level, you know, whether how do we change these incentives? So what is your hopelessly optimistic thesis for the things that we can do based on what you know? How do we at least start to try to turn the ship and, uh, you know, have a bold return to giving a damn. Well, in, in our case, I'm actually reasonably optimistic. You know, my, you know, me and my family are going to be okay for, for a while. You know, we've got a, we've got a good farm. We've got a, a good production system. We've got a good marketing system. And we're not, you know, our return on investment is horrible. But we're making a living and living comfortably and doing fine, and that's okay. That's fine. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I do, I do have concerns for the people who are not in a position to raise their own food, and I think that those people really should be working towards finding a relationship with someone that they can support in a mutually beneficial way. They'd support the farmer to help him make a living. He'd support them by providing their needs and have those relationships. And I I think it'd be great if it could be done through uh, existing uh, uh, grocery commercial ways. I'm not sure that's possible. Hmm. You know, we... Uh, we sell we sell to grocery stores, but it's it's uh, it's less and less. My my biggest customer was Whole Foods Market, and they ceased to do business with me. I mean, it's you know it was painful, but it's okay. You know, we found enough people to buy from us directly. Mm. Uh, and consumers are going to have to work to find farmers that they can support, and the farmers are going to have to work to keep the trust and satisfaction of those customers but when that relationship is, is built when it's put together it's a beautiful thing mm. i mean it's a it's a really it's good for the farmer good for the consumer good for the planet good for the animals it's just a, a beautiful thing yeah i think looking at it um objectively that 
the way that you're doing it is about as good as we can do it in terms of this regenerative framing that you are healing the soils. It's the best possible outcome and life for the animal. It's the healthiest product for the consumer. It's us spending our dollars where they actually matter and, and trying to shore up a future of soils. Cause I know we always hear, you know, there's only 50 years, 60 years left of healthy soils and, and such and such. I'm curious, you know, being a beacon of hope in that space for so many people why you know why why did whole foods choose to discontinue if they're supposed to be a beacon of putting the healthiest products on on the on the shelves as well well the, the whole foods changed a lot they were my first customer my biggest customer well, second customer they were my biggest customer and i'm not here to villainize them you know amazon bought whole foods and Amazon has a way of doing business, and you know I didn't fit into that. Mm. And you know I I'm not saying they're evil people or, or crooked people or, or hateful people, but I did not fit in that model. And I do, I do want to say that you know the so and you know we're bigger that white oak pastures is, is is bigger in terms of how much we produce right now than i ever intended to be hmm. and this business business i mean raising food is not meant to be highly scalable it's meant to be highly replicatable hmm. there can be many 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 of us yeah and, and, and i don't want to ship food to Washington State and California, we we do we ship a little bit, not much. It costs a lot to ship it that far. Mm. But I I wish that we had regional farms. I really wish there could be one in every rural community. But I, I don't I don't know what's possible and what's not. Mm. But I'm not I am not here on your show today to blow up sales for white oak pastures in. Maine and Oregon and New Mexico. That's mm. that's 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 not why I came to be here. I want sophisticated consumers in all all the states, all the communities, to find a farmer that they whose production system they find pleasing mm -hmm. and support. Support them. Support each other. You know, you, you, the consumer needs to know that unless something absolutely horrendous happens, they can get their next potato or tomato or loaf of bread from this there farm. And the farmer needs to know that he can plant those potatoes and tomatoes and wheat and have somebody that's going to buy it from them. So forming those symbiotic relationships is is what i want to urge everybody to do yeah i think uh collaboration it definitely beats competition in this sense because this is a competition where it's uh it's not when you win um you know it's it's just for you like if you win in this model we all win but if we keep feeding the industrialized beast i think they win and everybody else loses so i like this idea of kind of the ripple effect of not trying to dominate and be like white oaks pastures is the only option it's like hey take this model replicate and let's do this in all 50 states to the best of our ability because maybe then we actually give ourselves mm -hmm. a shot 
And when you've spoke about that, I've heard you use this term resiliency. You know, we talk about regenerative, um, basically putting inputs back in and creating biodiversity. But I'm really curious on your take around resiliency of a farm too. Like you managed to not only survive a difficult period with the pandemic where I had firsthand experience of this, the people I were getting my beef from, they were local farmers and they were basically out. They couldn't get a processing date in a plant for, I think they were saying maybe 12 to 18 months. And I'm driving around and all I can see is cows, but I can't get food. And you um, shore up some resiliency on White Oaks pastures, maybe a different way. And, and maybe that's something inspiring and hopeful for people to hear about too. So what's the story there in terms of your resiliency? Well, I mean, I, I don't know exactly how to answer that. I consider resiliency to be uh, a, a starring attribute. You know, I, I, if, uh, the, uh, you know, when I die, nobody's going to say uh, he was brilliant or he was beautiful to look at or he could, you know, get a football down the field faster than anybody else. But I believe they'll say that I would stick with it and make it happen. And that's resilience to me. It's the determination uh, when I was a kid, I don't want to digress too far here, but we used to talk about grit. Have you ever heard the term grit? Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of people hadn't heard that term, and I was shocked. We have a lot of young people that work here, and I said something about grit one day, and they didn't know what I meant. Mm. And I explained it to them. And it's incredible to me how in one or two generations, when I, when I was a kid, being told you had grit, was the best thing you could say to somebody. And today, you know, people don't know what it means. Mm. And I think that's very telling. I think that we have let resiliency, determination, grit kind of go by the wayside in our society. And maybe it's because it's not really uh, politically, what's the word? Uh, uh, smart. I mean, you, you uh, it's, it's a little combative. Mm. And, you know, those, those things are frowned on these days. But I think resiliency, the ability to stick with it and get the job done is a very important attribute. Yeah, I think this ability to stay responsive and think on your toes and not be victimized by what's going on like when the pandemic hit for example like oh no what are we going to do we can't do anything it's like okay this is difficult what are we going to do i know you set up you you literally set up processing plants on your farm right to kind of avoid the shutdowns like that's an an, an amazing and in hindsight borderline genius pivot because it creates resiliency again you can't get a date oh guess what well we have our own thing set up and i think you know that ability to dig and of course you know not everybody's going to have options for that but it models a state of mind it models a, an attribute that i must agree i admit and you know in comparison to yourself you know you're more of an elder i'm, I'm a lot younger but then there's a younger generation, you know, beneath me. And it seems to have bred into our institutions this virtuous victimhood that all we do is point the finger of blaming and complaining and life should be easy so that when it gets hard, we don't know what to do. We don't have that grit. We've come a little bit too soft instead of being able to be a little rough around the edges, rough and ready and rugged and, 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 and adaptable to make it work. So I think there's a, there's some wisdom in that about, you know, just getting our hands dirty, rolling the sleeves up and some good old fashioned hard work. 
I, I'm curious, you know, your take from a firsthand perspective on this term that gets thrown around a lot with regenerative agriculture, like biodiversity. How would you help somebody understand what that means and why it's so important on a farm and in soils and in animals and actually raising different kinds of animals on the same, you know, farm? You know, that's, that's a good question. So, uh, biodiversity is, is indeed a part of nature. Different creatures living in symbiotic relationships with other creatures, and it's, you know, microbes, insects, you know, all, all the way up the food chain uh, and across the lines, you know, plants benefiting from animals, benefiting from plants, benefiting from animals. And, and, and it's the way, it's just literally the way nature works. I, I, I tell people, can, can you think of a single monoculture that exists in nature on this planet? Can you think of one? No. I can't. I can't. If you think about the seas, the mountains, the deserts, the plains, there's many different species of flora, fauna, animals, plants moving in symbiotic relationships with each other. And that's how the bounty, the, the bounty that, that that we've that just built life on this earth has accumulated over the over the eons. But and really, again, post World War II, we have uh, selected this monocultural uh, production model where we want nothing but potatoes in the potato field and nothing but tomatoes in the tomato field and nothing but hogs in the swine production facility, just purely monocultural. And how wrong that is because you throw symbiosis away hmm. completely. And I think the most stark example of this uh, rejection of biodiversity um, is this move to something like lab-grown meat, for example. They're, they're, I'm very curious of your thoughts of somebody that's been doing this and obviously cares about this a lot, as do I, about the increasing acquisition of land from technocrats like Bill Gates, the largest owner of farmland in the United States, this push to lab-grown meat, which seems to me to be the antithesis of biodiversity. What's your take on this movement? What's what do you think's going on here with this Bill Gates acquiring land, lab-grown meat, taking away, you know, land from farmers that want to do it regeneratively and and, and create that symbiosis? Well, it's kind of, it's kind of two different things there to me. But uh, you know, for for someone like Mr. Gates to acquire these incredible amounts of acreage of a farmland is really concerning to me I, I defend as a as a private citizen of this republic i defend his right to do it you know, that's property rights I'm, I'm, a, I'm a great advocate of that mm -hmm. but as a student of nature and a student of the soil to have a, a a person who has no understanding of the uh natural systems of the of the of this land he's buying is concerning to me. I realize that he could hire any number of people that understand how that works. Hmm. But it appears that it's going the other way and the the, uh, uh, the places are monocultural, industrially farmed kinds of places and that's that's concerning to me.
Yeah. Uh, the uh, the other side of it was uh, uh, what, what was the the the, the factory what, what was the other part of that question? Yeah. So the phase one in which you took care of well is this you know push to these monocultures, row crops as far as the eye can see to basically create you know beyond burgers etc. And then this new adjacent thing which is lab-grown meat, you know, taking nature out of it completely. Like, why don't we just grow cows and burgers in vats and, you know, in, inputs the for, from God knows what. What's your take on the whole lab-grown uh, lab meat situation? Well, you know, I, I certainly don't know a lot about that. I certainly don't know enough about it to uh, uh, condemn it or argue the fact. But the, the fact that uh, every step that I've seen technology take us further and further away from from the natural production system has not ended well or is not ending well. Hmm. And I see this as a huge further divergence from the natural system. And I really don't consider that to be my competitor. Hmm. I mean, maybe it will one day. I mean, I'm not saying that we can't. I'm not saying we can't feed the world that way, but I bet we can't feed the world that way without a whole huge different set of problems. Mm. So I'm, I can't worry about that right now. Right now, my nemesis is the big implanted monocultural industrial farming system that's been growing and growing and growing since World War II. And is having more and more and inflicting more and more damage on our land, our water, our environment, rural communities, I think society in general. So, you know, I'm not going to worry about the second opponent yet, which is lab-grown meat. Mm -hmm. But I'm still fighting the first opponent, which is monocultural industrial-produced meat. Mm. That. I've been close enough to, to the monocultural situation to know how damaging it is. I can only speculate, but it's a it's a further step in the wrong direction. I'm pretty sure of that. Mm. With that in the on the table in terms of that that is the the big boss, if you will, to really push back again to really try and uh, change the direction or to stop the ship from sinking altogether. You mentioned in your book that. You, you you believe that we need to return to a radically traditional way of doing it. And I think, again, this, I think you said it beautifully, this, every time we've interjected technology, we've moved simultaneously further away from nature, seemingly further away from the solution. And maybe on the surface level, just like these chemical inputs solved one problem, but caused a dozen others. Is it fair to say that from your experience, your understanding, everything you're doing with healing the soil and CO2 sequestration in the soils and everything with white oak pastures, that the only way that we can save soils is this regenerative model that includes animals, that isn't just corn and soy fields, etc. Does it require animals? Does it require fundamentally the way that it's always been, these regeneratively grazing animals moving over land? Yes. Yes. It's, it's part of the system. You know, the earth evolved. The earth evolved with the symbiotic relationships between animals, microbes, plants, and it, 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 it yielded an abundance 
and the abundance. You know, if you look at just look at a globe, I can see a globe right over by. It's beautiful. You know, it's it's green and blue, and and it's it's just just beautiful. Look at those shots of the Earth from from space. It's beautiful, and the abundance that created that. You know, if look at the further abundance. Look at all that coal and oil and natural gas from the era of the dinosaurs that we're we've been living on for the last eighty or one hundred years. Uh, that that symbiosis, that that bounty of nature occurs from these that cyclical interaction between microbes, plants, animals, and we you know, we've broken that, and we've. Uh, uh, yeah, I will, let me take just a second and explain something that we 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 kind of left out. Uh, the difference in cyclical and linear. Mm-hmm. You will come in. You just made made it seem like I'm anti-technology, and I could see how you could make that statement. But I want I want to make it clear I'm not anti-technology. We mm-hmm. we I think we embrace technology pretty good. I had had the I'm I'm, I'm, I'm I think I'm on my fourth drone now. We we've been through. I had the first one. Anybody that I know of in, in this business down here. And I love technology. I got, I mean, I got all the stuff that anybody else has got, and it's fine. Yeah. But we talk there, there are linear systems and cyclical systems. And technology works beautifully in a linear system, not so well in a cyclical system. Agriculture, farming, nature is cyclical. Mm. Technology is very linear, and it is powerful. Technology is powerful, and it was so powerful we kind of got drunk on it, and we uh, took this linear system of technology and applied it to this natural cyclical system, which is food production, nature, fire. And it worked beautifully for a long time. As far as you could see, you just couldn't see very far. You couldn't see what was happening. But we were doing, we were uh, inflicting incredible damage to to the environment, to the ecosystem, to on and on, you know, from meteorological all the way down to seismic. So uh, using this powerful linear technology to in these uh, very cyclical natural systems uh, increases production exponentially in the short term mm-hmm. the long term it, it, it does incredible damage and the damage can be fixed but it, it's fixed more slowly than it's uh, inflicted. Mm-hmm. You, know, you asked earlier about, you know, it, it, uh, so my uh, dad started damaging this farm, I think, uh, in, a, in a very noticeable way uh, in 1945 with uh, technology, you big, big equipment, big tillage, uh, petro- pesticides, chemical fertilizer. Except for other things, antibiotics in the animals, all the tools. And it brought the land's productivity down to a very low point. Uh, and I've, I've been working to improve it for the last 25 years and have made dramatic uh, improvements. I really don't know 
how it compares today to what when my dad started the other way in 1945. I don't know. I don't have a, a basis to compare. We, mm. I knew that uh, we had uh, oxidized the organic model on this farm down to about one half of one percent. That's 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 a that's negligible. It's mm. a mineral, a dead mineral medium. Uh, today, using animal agriculture and the other tools that we use, we're up to 5% organic model, mm. 10x fold. And to put that in perspective for you, uh, 1% organic model will hold about 27,000 gallons of water per acre, about one inch, a one inch rain event. Mm. So when I had my dad and I degraded this quality of this soil down to a half percent organic matter, it would only absorb a half inch rain event. But that's not a run off. We get five or six inch rain events in the coastal plains where I live. Today it's five percent organic matter, a little over five actually. Hmm. So we can absorb a five percent a five inch rain event. And there's some if you look at our website, whiteoakpastures.com, there's some pretty compelling videos that clearly and arguably demonstrates that. You know, my, my land versus my neighbor's land. Mm. The one thing I think is incredibly hopeful here, and maybe I'm a little confused as to why it isn't being adopted as uh, a mainstream view, is everything that you're talking about, the the ability to, you know, capture that rainwater, healthy soils and a clear path to regeneration also factors into this uh, carbon equation. And you've demonstrated that those healthy soils with these animals on them become beneficial to the environment. And to loop and come full circle back on the technology conversation, I, I love that you made that distinction that, you know, technology can be a tool that if you use it in the right way, it can be incredibly profound. But if the tools start to use us, then we become the tools, you know? And one of the things that's often with more of this technologically obsessed or technocratic future is this push to get rid of animals off land, you know, because of cow farts and burps and carbon in the atmosphere. And it's all about, you know, the, you know, the carbon emissions. So we, we should only do plants instead. And I think what maybe is being missed is that you can do animal husbandry and regenerative agriculture, feed people great food that it actually fuels them from a health perspective, but also helps the environment too. And it seems to be that that's completely missed either because it's not understood or it's completely missed because it doesn't fit some kind of narrative or agenda. So how, how do you try and like square that circle of helping people understand that, you know, not all animal husbandry is destroying the, the climate and punching holes in, in the, um, you know, the ecosphere and that it's actually helping. First thing I would do is again, direct them to our website. It's a, uh, and uh, there's a, a study on our website, a scientific study done by an environmental engineering firm, international, environmental engineering firm called Qantas, Q-U-A-N-T-I-S. And it shows uh, the impact of that I was just discussing, that moving this land here from half percent to five percent organic model. And it's compelling. It's very, very compelling. You know, we're actually, our cattle operation is carbon negative. Our cattle, yes, they flatulate and burp, like anybody else's cattle. Yes, they do. They do. But the 
small amount of CO2 and other greenhouse gases they put back up or a small portion of what they pull down. You'd be pastures that my cattle graze are continually photosynthesizing and pulling down greenhouse gases that are in our atmosphere. Every bit of it comes from up there. All of it. It's all the carbon dioxide, all of it is photosynthesized. Some of it is built into the root mass under it. We've got 36-inch roots thick on our farm. All that used to be greenhouse gas. And then the rest of it makes forage up here. We put our cattle through about every 60 days. They graze down the forage. Hard impact. Graze it down. in a long recovery time. Build it back up. So if the carbon that pulls down in the, from greenhouse gas in that 60-day period, you know, some of it, as I said, photosynthesizing the root. Some of it goes out in feces. Some of it's turned into beef that we market, bones that we market, hides that we market. Uh, but it, it's just it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's cycling. Mm. And that's, that's not what happens in a, sadly, that's not the case in a confinement animal feeding operation cafe. And the uh, misled environmentalists that want to beat up ruminants, cattle, use that model to express how it works instead of our model. It's calculated. I've been on little debates with those people, and, and you know, they're, it's just horrible. Mm. You, know, you know, there's, you know, if, if a person is a vegetarian, and I, I know who my audience is here, and that's fine. I'm not catering to you or, or, or dismissing you either one. But if, if, if a person is, is vegetarian or vegan, because they just can't stand the idea of an animal dying so they could eat. That's fine. I respect it. Don't eat it. I'll get you some lettuce or something. If if uh, if, it's, if it's because it's just yucky, just can't stand the mouthfeel, there's a, there are reasons why some people may choose to be vegetarians or vegans, and it's fine. I respect it, and I'll accommodate it. Hmm. Sadly, there are militant vegetarians and militant vegans, and they believe they should not eat meat and that me and you and nobody else should be allowed to eat meat. And that's not okay. And a lot of these people are liars and charlatans, and they want to paint the meat business in the ugliest, ugliest possible way. And they use the confinement animal feeding operation example to whip us with it. And that's not what I do. You can't use that to whip me. Would you say that there is, from a top-down level of the people that steer that narrative the most in pop culture with movies and documentary and cowspiracies and, again, the painting with a very broad brush to try and compare something that you do to the cage animal feeding operation, but what do you think is the real uh, incentives there? Is it purely profit-driven? Do these people just see a mass amount of profit to be made here in terms of their ability to just yeah, congregate massive amounts of wealth and you know simultaneously maybe even believe that they are saving the environment? Or do they know that they're kind of you know just coming up with a, a false hypothesis here and doing what's trendy so they can make a boatload of money? Like, What's your take on that? Well, I certainly don't know the answer to your question, but I'll spec you've invited me to speculate, so I will. 
uh, you know, the uh, vegetarianism or veganism is not new. It's been around for a long, long time. But it's never really caught traction with great numbers of people internationally. Pockets, maybe, but not internationally. Uh, suddenly, uh, boy, I mean, they've gotten really good at it. Mm. I mean, there's just a lot of money put into convincing people that uh, animal agriculture, eating meat, animal agriculture, particularly ruminants, is really a villainous, horrible thing that should be eliminated completely, immediately. And, you know, that's happening about the same time that these, the, the pseudo-meat industry has burgeoned. And, you know, I don't know who paid who to do what, but, uh, you know, I, I just don't think it's an accident. I think that there's a concert. I, I know there's a concerted effort to stop people from producing and eating ruminant you know, meat in general. This is how I meet in general. And, uh, you know, there's, there's money behind it. And, uh, you know, it's easy to villainize people like me. It's easy to villainize people like you that eat a lot of meat and people like me that produce meat. But I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm unapologetic. Uh, we operate with full transparency. People come and look. We do. We, I built lodging and a restaurant so people could come and stay here and look. So yeah, that'll that'll be the the truth. Our, our shield and sword. Mm. I unfortunately feel the same way as you that there is um you know a, a concentrated effort to demonize and look to eliminate you know the the villainous meat eaters and uh, that it seems to be largely profit driven and incentives drive outcomes and I really love what you're doing to try and change the incentives even at a a small grassroots movement because I think it's bigger than we could imagine you know the ripple effects that we create by changing just one person's mind and how they get to you know vote with the dollar and and I guess I've just got a couple of questions for you and then we're going to bring in a couple of our caller questions um my first one of those is if you were to kind of give some kind of call to action to the listener in terms of how they can healthily push back against that emerging narrative and support, you know, people doing it the right way, what's your like biggest call to action? What's your biggest challenge to those people in order to support systems that are regenerative in their nature? I think, uh, I think for the consumer out there that's listening, uh, finding a farmer or two or three that produce food in a manner that's pleasing to you. It doesn't have to please anybody but you. And supporting them and doing so vocally, verbally, obviously, is is the, the way to, to win the war. Now, I will say this. So, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, I, I hate it when farmers want to say in 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 the uh, uh, get in the discussion of the way I farm is better than the way you farm. You know that that is so subjective. You know one of the things that's wrong with the 
university land grant agricultural system that I, I went to, um, University of Georgia, College of Agriculture, is that uh, we learn how to raise cows and hogs and sheep and goats from professors from all over the world. I literally had professors from all over the country and all over the world and other countries. And teaching me how to raise cows in Georgia. And uh, you know that that that's that's such a boilerplate. Uh, you know, the, the way the way you raise animals on your farm should be determined by what works in your ecosystem, whether it's coastal plains, mountains, deserts, what, what you know, it's all over the board. Even here in my county, you know, twenty miles that way, it's different. So the farming system should manage should uh, be determined by the the ecology of the, of the landscape. So the uh, animal welfare systems, all the systems around land, I've had all those certifications in my life. It's it's very imperfect because it's so different in Southwest Georgia, Southwest Maine, and Southwest. California. Uh, you, the, the, you, I think you've got to find you a farmer who farms on a model that pleases you. Mm-hmm. And the closer to home, the better. You know, we, I don't want to ship beef all the way across the country. Right. I want to ship beef in the South. So I think those are important things. Powerful, powerful. And one more question from me. Because I think this, uh, you might not recognize it as such, um, maybe because you're smart enough and wise enough to stay off social media, etc. But White Oaks Pastures and yourself are garnering a certain amount of fame and notoriety in this regenerative space as a leader. And I'm curious, like, what comes with that? Of course, this kind of kicked off with a um, appearance on Fox News that led into a Joe Rogan interview. Talk to me a little bit about that journey over the last couple of years. What was it like to appear on on, on Fox News and what everything that happened since then? Well, the appearance I made on Fox News wasn't much fun. He uh, <laughs> he pissed me off. He, uh, you know, I, I was asked, Stuart Varnage, that guy's not even, I don't watch, I don't watch news much. I don't, I don't, I don't get involved in, so in, in I don't, I don't watch TV much. I don't watch Instagram much either. <clears throat> but uh, he, this Stuart Marnie from Fox News, asked me to be on his show. And he, uh, it was to talk about Bill Gates' ascent in agriculture. And I, I have opinions on that. I, I stated some of them earlier in our conversation. So I, it's five minutes. So I sat down and wrote down how I felt about that. And I'm not out to skin Bill Gates. I think that he's a, he's a technocrat and that's not the right approach for a natural system like agriculture, but I'm not, I don't, I don't think he's an evil man. I don't know him. I don't. Mm-hmm. But as I wrote it down and I, and I was prepared to, to, to give him a little talk and he asked me the question and I started responding and I hadn't said many words yet, but why, why? <laughs> and he wouldn't let me talk. I mean, every time I start talking, he, so, you know, I fucked that up pretty good and, uh, I, I did a bad job. So, uh, when, when we got off the air, I was very dissatisfied and Jenny, my daughter, 
just videoed me having the talk without Stuart Carney and put it on our social media. And Joe Rogan saw it and contacted Jenny. She gets all our incoming and uh, asked me to be on his show. And I didn't know who Joe Rogan was. I've never heard of Joe Rogan. And she uh, <laughs> said, she was really excited. She got a chance. We got, we got a chance to go be on the Joe Rogan show. And I said, we're good. That's fine. She said, you got to go to Austin. I said, I ain't going to Austin. <laughs> said, oh, yeah, you're going to Austin. <laughs> so, but I did. And he gave me the opportunity to uh, to just tell my story like I thought it all be told. And he invited me to be back on his show again in November this year. So that's and he And he was... He was a very kind person. I mean, I don't know how how you feel about him, how you always feel about him. I don't have much of an opinion, except he was very gracious in allowing me to tell what I had to say. And I appreciate him having me back on in November. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, we're Team Joe Rogan, or at least I speak for myself. I'm Team Joe because he's willing to give people like yourself a platform. And he's becoming one of the biggest, well, the biggest uh, independent news media outlets in there. And the fact that he allowed you to come on after that and, you know, to try and fix these problems we're talking about in five minutes is completely unrealistic anyway and gave you the scope of two and a half hours to do that and then to come back and do it again is incredible and you know this book will tell a lot of that story and a lot of those points and we'll we'll get everybody pointed in the right direction to to this as we wrap up the conversation but before i let you go will because i know you've got a lot of heartbeats on the farm over there to take care of not just animals too i know you employ 110 percent of your local population or something crazy like that <laughs> we also have a, a couple of questions from our community so we're going to read those out and um you can take them where you will and then uh, we'll wrap this thing up so uh, our little uh, videographer over here kate is going to read us off some of our questions and we'll see what we've got sweet so uh the first question which came in from our instagram radical health radio is from Haley. Uh, she wants to know the differences between corn-fed and grass-fed beef do different types of cattle provide different levels of nutrition? Uh, the, the difference in uh, corn-fed and grass-fed is uh, cattle, like sheep, like goats, are ruminant animals. Ruminant animals have a digestive system that uh, works well for digesting cellulose, like grazing the forage of grass or forbs. And that's what they were designed to eat. That's, that's what they evolved. Evolved is a better word. That's what they evolved to eat. As opposed to a uh, chicken or a hog who has a simple stomach like us. It doesn't have four sections to it. It's just got one simple stomach. And the, it doesn't work very well digesting cellulose digesting forage they would a hog and a chicken would probably starve to death eating average quality forage all day long so uh, we uh, and, and there was very little grain-fed beef uh, in, in the marketplace until post-world war ii post-world war ii we had the agricultural revolution that we talked about earlier we uh, uh, put, put out a lot of chemical nitrogen. Hybrid seed came about, corn seed. We're talking about uh, uh, in the mechanical 
cultivation of land, just a lot of things happened to cause an explosion of grain production, particularly corn production in this country post-World War II. When that happened, it became, for the first time ever, cost-effective to feed corn to cattle. It takes about seven pounds of corn to make a pound of beef. We could argue that a little bit, but that's about right. Corn became so artificially cheap because we were using those uh, technologies that you could afford to, to feed seven pounds of corn to a cow and, and sell the beef and make money on it. So the, the beef feeding industry was born from really cheap corn that was born from the Industrial Revolution, farming revolution. Does that, does that answer the question? Yeah, that was perfect. Thank you, Will. Uh, do we have any more questions up there, Cade? Yeah, we got one more. Uh, this one's from Matt. He wants to know, what are your thoughts when people say regenerative agriculture is not sustainable? Well, my first, not, not to be a smart ass, but <laughs> it, it, what we're doing now is not sustainable. Regenerative is sustainable, but I do. I think I know what they're. Uh, I think I know what they're getting at. And, and, and here's the fact. So here's the fact. So uh, it costs more to raise food using regenerative land management than it does using the industrial tools. You you, you take direct cost out of production when you use chemical fertilizer, pesticides, those, those things I just mentioned to you. But the costs don't go away. They're just moved around. So if you, I don't know if you heard about that big, huge dead area in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm, yes. It's caused to a great extent by chemical fertilizers and pesticides washing down the Mississippi River. Well, that was those those floods of chemical fertilizers and pesticides were caused by industrial farming. And they took a lot of cost out of out of the production of corn, cotton, soybeans, whatever was grown up that river. But the cost of that was borne by the rest of us when all the fish got killed in the Gulf of Mexico. Many of the, of the life, much of the life, got killed in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, I can go through many, many, many natural system disruptions that are caused by industrial food production, but it, the cost were not borne by the industrial food production. Hmm. The cost was borne by society. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really cool reframe actually, like the hidden costs we don't often see. And I think, yeah, I'm glad that you were a smart ass in the first answer to that question, because that's the beautiful, most succinct way to put it. Like what we are doing anyway is not sustainable. And it's got a lot of these maybe hidden costs that are becoming increasingly more difficult to hide because it's apparent in terms of what we're seeing in terms of soil health, degradation, land mass loss, etc. So very, very well said. Will, I, I did appreciate you a lot. I appreciate you taking the time with us and our audience today and sharing this knowledge. I think that this is 
know, we speak about existential threats. I believe that this is one of the true ones that maybe doesn't get all the attention it deserves. Because like I said earlier in the conversation, if the food runs out, it's going to get really ugly really quick. And I don't think any of us want a future where we're living off Soylent Green or, or Bill Gates' impossible burgers and becoming nutritionally, from a physical perspective, ill-healthy and frail and also destroying our soils. And once our soils are wrecked, it's only a matter of time until we as a species is wrecked. So I, I think it's very, very important what you're doing. I would love for you to continue to point people where they can go. Let's tell them a little bit of your, you know, your high level take on a bold return to giving a damn which it comes out on october 10th and where everybody should go to keep up to speed with what you're doing and anything else that is on your mind or on your heart well the uh, the book is not an advertising brochure for white oak passions it's my observations of the uh, industrialization and then deindustrialization of our food production system and it's uh you know, it is what it is. It's my first book. It's my last book. It's the only book I'm going to write. I'm done with that. But uh, uh, I hope that it does help. If it does anything, I hope it helps people gain understanding of how our food system has gone off the tracks. Whiteoakspastures.com. And I think your legacy, which some of it is in this book, but is really in your land and the generations on the farm that you still have, they're paying it forward. And everybody hopefully picks up that torch and is willing to do their part in either whether that's voting with their dollar or being crazy enough to just so, you know, work on their own little systems and their own little farms one day. And, uh, you know, together, maybe we can get through this and maybe it's not such a shit show, but there's going to be some growing pains along the way. So very appreciative for your voice in this space and your leadership. Very excited to continue digging into this book and catch you on Rogan again. Thank you for everything that you guys do at White Oaks Pastures. Well, it's been a pleasure. And, uh, Fam, friends, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Thank you for having me on. Thank you, Will. All right, friends, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Radical Health Radio. We got a fresh new podcast for you every Wednesday. If you enjoyed the show, consider liking, subscribing, reviewing, and rating us on your podcast platform. It helps to spread this message of radical health. We'll see you next week.